So we've been in this journey called Lost. And I have to say probably that every single one of us, regardless of who we are, where we've been, what we've done, we can all relate to this in some form because how many of us can honestly say we've lost something? We don't necessarily have to define it right now, but when you're born into this life, because of sin, we're destined to lose something. But in this series, we've been in the book of Ezra, and we've been studying the nation of Israel. And we've come to discover several things over these past few weeks. The first thing we've come to discover is that it's bigger than us. How many times do we need to hear that over again? It's bigger than us. Sometimes it's hard for us to realize and grasp that nothing ever takes God by surprise. In the midst of our situation, no matter how big it is, no matter how desperate we think the crisis may be, it never takes God by surprise. And the great fact is this, is that it's bigger than us. Regardless of the loss of a relationship, a family member, maybe we're currently fighting a disease, we're currently wondering about where our future is going to take us and we've lost all hope in that, whatever it may be, God is not surprised about it. But the great thing is, is that it's bigger than us. It's bigger than what we're battling currently physically. It's bigger than what we're battling financially. It's bigger than what we're dealing with for our future. It's so much bigger than us. And I love it because Israel discovered this. Think about it. They were abducted and enslaved for 70 years. It seems as though they lost everything. And they came to realize that it was bigger than them. Not only that, we found out through this series that we still got our stuff. Even though we may think that we've lost something physically that we can't hold on to anymore, or maybe emotionally we have lost something so dear to us, but God wanted us to know and reminded us simply this, that we still got our stuff. I love how God illustrates it with Israel in the book of Ezra because... Israel came to understand that, sure, they lost their temple, they lost their worship, they lost their culture, they lost their freedom. But the Lord reminded them and said, hey, guys, let me tell you what, you still have your resources because I've given you visionaries. I've given you men and women within your culture that still see what I have planned for you to come. And then the Lord speaks to them and says, I gave you encouragers. I've given you men and women who, regardless of the circumstance, just have this overwhelming ability to just encourage you and edify and excite you in the midst of your crisis. And the Lord says, and most of all, I've given you worshipers. I've given you committed men and women who are pushing you constantly to continue to keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Lord and don't give up hope. But find your strength in worshiping God. And for some of us through this series, we've been learning to relay our foundations. There's a shaking going on within us during this series. Some of our old foundations are being relayed. God's just taking all those old things that we've been holding on to. And he's just tearing them down because he's saying, I got something bigger and better that I want to rebuild within you. Israel learned this. Israel learned how to practice their restoration by wiping out fear through worship and destroy regret with joy. And then last week, we encountered this amazing ability that's within all of us, and that's to overcome opposition, regardless of how big it may be to our eyes. And then we talk about this thing called favor. Man, that's tricky. It's mysterious try to define it. Favor is a hard thing because you can't earn it. You can't buy it. There's no formula for it. Favor's weird. And I remember our guest speaker last Sunday morning was Pastor Steve Savage, and he ended on that point and he said, pray for favor. And he kind of just left us hanging there in limbo. You know, you're just kind of in that weird, crazy stage. You're like, pray for favor. And then it's like, well, How do we do that? What is that? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about expecting God's favor. So the question is, what is favor? 
We're told to expect it, but what does it look like? How do we get a hold of it? Is it something that we catch? (laughs) Do we just pray and God just, oh, wait, there's favor. I got it. Okay, great. Now what do I do with this? Most importantly, what does favor look like in the eyes of God? Now I'm going to give you my definition as I just sat down and I prayed and I said, God, you know, what what does favor look like in your eyes? And I'm just telling you right now, I'm just making, you know, a disclaimer. This is not the thus saith the Lord version. This isn't the Oxford Dictionary version. This is just Jason Hotchkiss's version of favor. My definition of favor is a supernatural intervention manifested in the midst of the impossible. It's this thing that God does that's absolutely humanly impossible. It's taking that situation or that crisis that there is no answer or human strength that can solve it. And God miraculously enters into that situation and takes what is not seen and lumps it all together and says, situation's complete, taken care of. That's my favor. But what I love is that the favor of God is available to every follower of Jesus. Every follower of Jesus, meaning that if you have confessed with your mouth and you've believed in your heart and declared that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, you're a follower of Jesus. And that favor is available to every single one of us. And I'm going to talk about more of that in a moment. And a lot of times we view Israel as something unique. And don't get me wrong, Israel is unique because it's God's chosen nation. But what I like about Israel is Israel is a picture of the New Testament church currently. It's a spiritual aspect to us. Israel suffered defeat. New Testament church, we've suffered defeat in our lives. Israel's been victorious. We've been victorious. Israel struggled with worship of idols and putting other gods before them. And how many times do we struggle day in and day out of fighting that constant battle of putting other gods before God? But there's a lot to learn from this book of Ezra. And I've come to realize that our loss or gain is an opportunity to understand God's favor. Think about that for a moment. Let it just resonate in the seat of your emotions for a minute. Loss or gain is an opportunity. How many times can we relate to this? We get a phone call when we least expect it. Get a test result that we're really not happy with the outcome of it. We find ourselves in the midst of our employer's office getting that message that we don't want to hear to deliver to our family. Or just seems that everything's going great right now in our lives. But how many times have we stopped and said, wow, I'm really excited about this. Because this is an opportunity to see God's favor. When was the last time when you experienced a loss and you just said, wow, you know what? I am, I'm really pumped up about this. Well, why? Because I get to see the favor of God working in the midst of this. Or when was the last time when everything seems to be going so smooth and so great that we're like, wow, this is amazing. Not only did God do this in my life, but I can't wait to see what he's about to do next. I can't wait to see his favor in this. I love favor because it's a deeper call to see Jesus in a different way in our lives. See, it all leads back to the cross. If we try to take the cross of Christ out of what we do, we have no direction. We have no vision. We have no hope. We have no favor. Favor is one of those ways that Jesus brings us back to the cross because at the cross, there's intimacy. And that's God's ultimate thing because God is compelled by love for us. He loves us regardless of what we've done or how horrendous we think we are in his eyes. He still loves us. He's so attracted to us. And it all goes back to the cross. And Christ says, I'm just going to give you another little tool, another little avenue to bring you right back to point A. So I'm going to give you my favor because I want you to see this in a different way. And I want you to come back to the cross. 
favors a prospect to upgrade our view and image of who God is for us. When we encounter the favor of God, he's calling us to view him in a different way than what we ever have before. How many of you like to do the same thing all the time that you're comfortable with? Go ahead, just raise your hand. I'm I'm one of those. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. (laughs) Okay, all of you separate over. No, I'm just kidding. There's something about us as humans we don't like change. And I find this interesting that it even filters into our spiritual journey with Jesus. We don't like change. We like to pray the same way. We're comfortable with praying the same way and praying the same prayers. Same prayer list. Same music. Well, I listen to that music because it just it moves me into the presence of God. Okay. Well, I pray, I pray this prayer list because, you know, I know God hears me. But you see, here's the thing. When we encounter the favor of God, and when we get back to the cross, we begin to discover different views of God that he wants us to encounter. For years, I would always see God as my deliverer. It's pretty common in our journey with Jesus, right, as followers of Jesus. God, you're my deliverer. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not mocking that. But one day God said to me, he said, you know, I'm more than that. You are? (laughs) Okay. And he began to stretch me and say, you know what? I'm glad that you see me as your deliverer, but now I want you to see me in another way because I'm more than your deliverer. If we are to attract his favor, we must know that God prospers joyful dreamers. God prospers joyful dreamers. I love that word joy. Now, when I say the word love, I don't mean like I love it like burritos or tacos. I mean I love it like I love God, like I love my wife. It's funny, my wife and I all the time, we, we you know joke around about this, and she's like, I love lemon bars. And so I'm like, you love it like tacos, or do you love it like, you know, you love me? She laughs and jokes. It's this ongoing joke, but... A lot of times we use that word love and we just throw it around. And I just wanted to give you a little reminder of how powerful our words are. But I really love the word joy because when I hear the word joy, it sparks something within me. It goes deep to my inner core. When I hear the word joy, I think of strength. Or when I hear the word joy, I think of completion. When I hear the word joy, I think of impossibility. I'm not making that up. It's what I hear when I hear the word joy. So what I want you to do is I want you to repeat after me the word joy. Ready? One, two, three. Joy. Now we're going to repeat it one more time, but we're going to say it a little more joyous. And then what I want you to do is I want you to listen to the deeper part of that word. And listen to what that word speaks directly to you. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Joy. Now just sit on that a minute. What do you hear? Think about it. Now what I want you to do is I want you to turn to your neighbor right beside you, and I want you to tell him what you heard when you you said the word joy, and then just go ahead and exchange it again. Go ahead. Okay, good. I'm glad that you got it. It should be only like one syllable. Okay. Now I'm going to need some people to participate with me here. All right, so when you heard the word joy, Kim, what did, what did you hear in that word joy? Rest. Peace. All right. Phil, what did you hear when you heard that word joy? Happiness. PJ, what did you hear in the word joy? Reassurance. Wonderful, wonderful. Don't worry, you can all relax. I'm moving to the next section. (laughs) Lynn, what did you hear when you heard the word joy? Oi. (laughs) All right, we'll sit on that a little bit. You guys can relax over there. You see, there are so many different diversities in the word joy that when we hear it, 
And that's how God speaks to us because we've come to realize that God prospers joyful dreamers. You see, I love joy because joy is the essence of our creator. It's who he is. For years, I used to enter my prayer time, like kind of like with an arrow and a spinning wheel. And on the wheel, it would say, mad, happy, sad. And so when I'd get into my prayer time, I'd spin it and be like, okay, God, where's it going to land? Are you happy, mad, or sad today? (laughs) How many of us have been there and done that? You don't have to raise your hand. But it's this constant wondering, like, are you happy? Are you mad? Are you sad, God? But let me free some of you today. The essence of our creator is joy. He loves us even in our weakness. You don't have to beat yourself senseless spiritually when you enter into the presence of God. Yes, granted, understand, I'm not making room for sin to just be spread out everywhere or greasy grace. But what I'm talking about is is that God has a place for where sin is and he can't handle it. But he also sees us, his creation. And we are so attractive to him. And joy is the essence of God. And that's why joyful dreamers attract God because where joy is, he's attracted to that. Now, you take that joy because you've got to understand joy is just not, it's just not something that's wrapped up or enveloped in a fantasy or a creative imagination. But joyful dreaming is a Jesus-centered dream. And joy put together, and with that combines a force that is so unstoppable. And we need to get back to joyful dreaming as followers of Jesus. So... I want us to join together this morning and look in the book of Ezra, and we're going to start in chapter 6. Israel got a hold of this. They harnessed this understanding of joyful dreaming, and that's where we're going to camp out this morning. It's in Ezra chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 14. It says this, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. Now, you've got to understand, in the NIV, it says the preaching of. New King James Version says the prophesying of. And I'm going to talk about that in a few moments. But let's look at our situations through the eyes of Israel for a moment. So people look at us. And they say, man, you've lost everything. Wow, honey, how are you dealing with that? You, you lost all that. But, but there's just something different about you. You, you have this joy. You're, you're like happy. I don't understand it. After that loss, how, how can you be so joyful? How can you just be going on and just carrying on with life after what you've suffered or what you've lost? <laughs> It's great because every new level gives, God gives us requires a fresh perspective of who he is. People may say and look at us and say, but you've lost everything. But you can say, hey, I've got joy. Because God has taken me to a new level of who he is. A new way of seeing who he is and who he wants to be for me in the midst of this loss or in the midst of this gain. And therefore, I have a right to be a joyful dreamer. Over time, as I read these scriptures, I realize that we're, we're told, we're exhorted, we're challenged by these exact people in the book of Ezra to flourish and to prosper and to build, even in the midst of suffering. That's what happened with Israel. These prophets come along, Zechariah and Haggai, and they start begin to prophesy to the Israelites, and it says that they flourished. It says that they built, they prospered. They didn't stop. They kept going. And over time, I have come to realize that loss enables us to scatter our current view and invite Jesus into that area of our lives. Okay. Ah, 
Okay, I found it. <laughs> okay. We are Intel. Sponsors of tomorrow. Okay, now I'm not trying to promote Intel. But there was something that I love about this video. Did you catch it? Shake your heads, yes, we'll keep going. <laughs> yeah, Intel says that their ideas are bigger than our ideas, or different than our ideas. And I love the concept because people, the media, come rushing in into this room expecting this great grand idea, expecting something big and something huge. And when they get in there, everybody's on the floor, and the individual finds it, and he picks it up with a pair of tweezers. And you look, and there's nothing there. But they saw something. There was something they had that was far greater and bigger than their current perceptions. God is like that with us. Our perception is far different than his. And he wants us to come to this place where we realize that his ideas are bigger than our ideas. Now, I understand that our joy is tested every day, and we have to work at it. But here's the great thing about joy, is that joyful dreaming flows out of our alignment with Jesus Christ. See, the world and the culture around us will tell us how to dream. But I have come to discover that dreaming according to the culture and according to the world's standards limits us. When we dream with the world, we dream with limitations and boundaries. We're limited by finance. We're limited by resource. We're limited by emotion. We're limited by words that surround us. But when we dream with Jesus, all the boundaries are taken off. All of the limitations are set aside. What is money and finances to Christ? When it comes to dreaming with Jesus, what is building an army to God? When it comes to Jesus, there are no limitations or boundaries that can withhold him and enable us to dream with him. But dreaming with Jesus enables him to awaken that plan within us. I realize that Israel lost their temple. They lost their culture. They lost their freedom. They lost a lot of their abilities. But God never lost his plan. How many of us have lost something? I don't want you to raise your hand. How many of us are currently in the midst of a loss? And at face value, we say, I don't know how I can deal with this. At face value, we begin to question God. And we kind of wonder, does he know what he's doing? It seems like Billy Bob over on the side is like this with God right now because everything's going great for him. Did God, like, forget about me and scoot over and focus on Billy Bob for the season? I don't think so. I don't think so at all because God never forgot his plan about you. He never forgot his plan about me. He never forgot his plan about each and every single one of us. He never forgot his plan about those who are working in the grocery store or those working on the floor at GE. God never forgot the plan. You may think that you currently experienced a loss, and maybe you did. But God has not forgotten his plan in the midst of it. And remember that it's bigger than us. And that's the reason why we can be joyful dreamers. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.4. 4. Paul says this with simplicity. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So Paul shows up at the church of Philippi, and he just gives this wisdom. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And again, I'll just tell you to rejoice. Okay. But what are we going to do about this situation, Paul? Well, no, here's what you do. You, you're going to rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm just going to exhort you again, rejoice. I looked up that word rejoice, and you know what it means? To be joyful. How about that? So Paul, the apostle, who writes more than half of the New Testament, walks into the church of Philippi and says, yeah, here's the solution to your problem. Be joyful. 
And again, I'm going to tell you, be joyful. The reason why Paul said that was because he encountered a different view and nature of God and the characteristics of God that he had not seen before, which gave him the ability to be a joyful dreamer and say, wow, I can take this from a whole new stance. Yes, I've lost all these other elements, but I can be joyful in this because I see that my circumstances are currently temporary and that God's plan is so much bigger than this. I've also come to realize that if we are to expect his favor, we must watch as God supplies the anointing. Now that word anointing, it's kind of mysterious. It's one of those things again, you know, you can't buy it. Can't save up for it. What are you doing? I'm saving for the anointing. The spouse says, why would you start that new savings? Saving for the anointing. It's not the case. We can jump up and down and scream all we want, but is that going to get us the anointing? The word anointing is actually pretty popular among the charismatic Pentecostal movement. In my personal views and opinion, I believe it's become twisted. We just kind of use it as an everyday word. That brother's anointed. Did you hear her? She's anointed. Man, when they prayed for me, they were anointed. Well, what on earth does that mean? What on earth does that mean? Well, the word anointed simply means this, and hopefully this will help clear it up a little bit for us, that when we talk with others, the anointing is the divine ability that matches the task and the authority to overcome the present obstacles. I'll repeat that again because it's worth writing down. The anointing is the divine ability that matches the task and the authority to overcome the present obstacles. So we see in the book of Ezra, God reminds them to be joyful dreamers. And then God steps in with his favor and says, I'm going to give you the anointing to accomplish this. I'm going to give you the divine abilities, and I'm going to give you the authority to reestablish that which has been lost in your lives. Unfortunately, I believe in this day and age in the body of Christ, we have become too self-appointed with the anointing. I'll let that sink in a moment. We have come very eager that we self-anoint ourselves. And what I mean by that is, We automatically say, well, I have the authority, I have the divine ability, so I'll just go do that. And that's not the case. That's not how God established this. And I want to remind us that if we do not humble ourselves in a lifestyle of dependency before Jesus, he will make fools of us. And I really believe that the world and the culture around us does not need a foolish church or a foolish kingdom but a kingdom that operates in power and authority under the true anointing of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Let's look at Ezra chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 6 and we're going to jump to verse 11. But in the New Living Translation, it says this. This Ezra was a scribe who was well-versed in the law of Moses which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. Underline that phrase, because that's important. He came to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king gave him everything he asked for, because the gracious hand of the the Lord his God was on him. Underline that phrase. Now look at verse 11. King Artaxerxes had given him a copy of the following letter to Ezra, the priest and scribe who studied and taught the commands and the decrees of the Lord of Israel. Now, we have to understand, until this point, Ezra has not been on the construction site. Okay? So, this guy, this priest, this scribe, shows up, and he has a letter in his hand, and he's bringing along with him all these resources. So, Ezra shows up to the construction site, and we can see this because he's walking in the favor of God. Imagine right now that in the midst of your loss... Things begin to turn around, and all of a sudden, God says, now I'm going to give you this, 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 and this, and this. And I'm going to confirm it through man, and you're going to go do this. 
Imagine what that's going to be like. Now, we know that God supplies Ezra with everything needed, that he supplies him with the divine ability, and that he supplies him with the authority, because it states it right here in Scripture. And I love this phrase that I had you underline. Because the gracious hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. That's a brilliant expression of God's favor and God's anointing. Absolutely powerful. We have to realize that the anointing is always linked with humility and purity. The anointing is always linked with humility and purity. And this is so critical for us to grasp. If we don't get this, (laughs) we lost it. (laughs) Because there's two factors about humility and purity tied with the anointing. The first fact about humility is this. Humility is just us surrendering our selfishness and independence before God. And it's accomplished with no human strength at all. That is what's so awesome about the anointing that's humbling. The purity factor is that we surrender to God with the mission that he's given us to restore things with no selfish agenda. Nothing hidden. John 10.10 tells us this. Jesus said this. This isn't in your notes, but you can jump into your Bibles if you want and and jump over and meet me there at John 10.10. But Jesus says this. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, where I'm going with this is Jesus. The reason Jesus says he puts on flesh and he comes to earth is to give us life. The word in the Greek is called zoe. To give us a living spirit, but one more abundant. Now, what I find interesting is, is Jesus doesn't say, I've come to give you ministries and ministries more abundant. I've come to give you a self-motivated agenda and more abundant. doesn't say that, does it? He says, I've come to give you life. Life according to my agenda. Life that you will prosper. And what we get from that is that the motive of the anointing must flow from the life of God. It must flow from the life of God. And as we allow this humility and purity to be birthed within us, God will then grow the anointing within us accordingly. That's why we can't earn it. That's why we can't purchase it. That's why there's no, uh, little, there's no little coupons in the Sunday paper that you can clip out for the anointing. Get 15, 16% you know, cents off <laughs> a little bit of the anointing. Another word that helps us to grasp purity is the word holiness. This morning we sung about God being holy. That word simply means other than. But Ezra had this thing about him that he had the anointing, he had humility and purity. He had this thing called holiness about him. Holiness simply means being changed into the image and character of God. It is not changing God into our own image. Holiness is being changed into the image and the character of God. And Ezra had something about him that God displayed that he had the character, he had the holiness, he had everything there. And the reason is that humility and purity is that foundation for the anointing is because that involves our character. See, God designed us that our character, as he builds it and we allow him to build it within us, it becomes a foundation for his anointing to rest on us. And if our foundation is wishy-washy, if the cement isn't laid right, and if it doesn't get into every crack and say the block is a little offset, the, the more weight of the anointing on our character will crush us and we will end up falling apart. That's why the anointing is linked with purity and humility. Look with me at Ezra chapter 7, verse 25 through 28. It says this, And you, Ezra, are to use the wisdom your God has given you to appoint magistrates and judges who know your God's laws to govern all the people in the province west of the Euphrates River. Teach the law to anyone who does not know it, 
Anyone who refuses to obey the law, your God, the law of your God, and the law of the king will be punished immediately, either by death, banishment, confiscation of goods, and or imprisonment. Praise the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who made the king want to beautify the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, and praise him far for demonstrating such unfailing love to me by honoring me before the king. His counsel and all the mighty nobles, I felt encouraged because the gracious hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered some of the, le- of the leaders of Israel to return with me to Jerusalem. It's a lot of scripture right there. And I realize that I need to update my prescription on my glasses. <laughs> this is important scripture because here we see the divine abilities of God and the authority matched to overcome the current obstacles. I love this. The king tells Ezra, and you, Ezra, are to use the wisdom of your God has given you to a point. See, there's two factors in here. First of all, man recognizes that Ezra has been given authority and divine ability to overcome the obstacle. Then man gives Ezra the authority to move in that authority because he says, you will use the wisdom that your God has given you and you will do this such and such and such. And this is something we have to understand. We always need to make room for the anointing of God in our lives. That's so important because we cannot force it. Notice Ezra didn't force it. But he just made room for it by his lifestyle. If you want God to use you in the anointing, you must make room for it. Meaning allow him to develop your character over time and don't force the anointing, but allow him to build your character to sustain the anointing when it comes. And God will provide the way. We have to allow God to call us and for man to establish us. Several years ago, a very good friend of mine had a vision to rescue children who were in human trafficking and enslaved. And God had given him the vision to do it. And he himself had gone into other countries and worked with other people and rescued children and helped them to to get out of foreign countries and different things like this, but Somehow it just didn't seem effective enough. No matter what he tried to do, it just seemed that he wasn't doing enough. The resources were limited. And it just seemed that he was always going up against a wall. And so as he made room for God to move in his life, and he allowed God to build his character to a place, God gave him the authority. Man recognized it. And now... It's going globally all over the world, all the way to Washington, D.C. Kids are being rescued out of human trafficking and sex slavery and be, that are being used for slaves. Kids as young as four years old are being put, taken out, bought out of slavery, put into homes, learning about Jesus and being delivered from that environment. But first, God had to give it and man had to recognize it for everybody to get on board with it. See, favor with the Lord means that we must make room as God installs the company. As God installs the company. The Lord always calls a committed group of men and women or a committed company of men and women to help in the midst of the situation. And starting at the beginning of chapter 8, we see Ezra gathering a company of people that are committed to what is about to happen. Now, I'm going to ask for your grace as I repeat these words or these names of these individuals that are called committed men and women. (laughs) All right, so bear with me. Starting in chapter 8, verse 19 through 20, it says this, Because the gracious hand of our God was honest on us, they brought us Sherebia, a capable man. Underline that word capable man, it's important. From the descendants of Machle, of Levi, the son of Israel, Sherebia's sons and brothers, 18 men, and Kashabiah and Yashbiah from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 
20 men. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the official has established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. If you go through this whole list, because we don't have time to go through it, but you'd want to go back and review this list of all the men and all the women that Ezra was provided, a committed company of men and women, it is unbelievable. That is the favor of God. And in the midst of this, we see that the Spirit of God motivated others. That word capable man actually means men and women of insight that Israel was given. And then also in there, it talks about those 220 temple servants. They weren't forced to come. No one forced them. The actual translation says that they were actually, it says here, they were motivated by the Spirit of God to respond. That's key. That is key. When God installs a company of men and women around you to have restoration, you can't force the company to be formed. It has to be motivated by the Spirit of God in order for it to fully happen and come into existence. And it's something that we have to understand is that when we form the company that God has given us, it cannot be formed on appearance, but it must be formed out of deep prayer. We have to be responsible in doing our own part and praying in the company that God wants to surround us with. For if we just try to gather people under our own strength and our own passions and under our own desires chances are pretty slim that you're really going to see something come to fruition. But if we submit that to God and we pray in the committed, installed company that he has for us, we will see the wheels begin to turn. The second thing that we must do is we must produce unity among the installed company. Unity. Because there is no substitute for unity in the body of Christ. If we want kingdom success, or what we define as kingdom success, unity must be at the center of it. Because unity releases exponential anointing and power. Unity produces and releases exponential anointing and power. Let me, let me just give you a little formula here for us so we can understand. Are you ready for this? This is pretty big revelation. Just joking. Unity plus the church equals power. It's pretty big, huh? Let me say that one more time in case you wanted to write that down. <laughs> Unity plus the church equals power. That's so key. And the reason I say that is, Ezra demonstrates it in the further scriptures, which we're going to talk about real briefly in a moment. We pray for signs and wonders. We pray for God to move in the midst in mighty ways. And we've been seeing God do some crazy things in our workplaces. And I want to tell you this. The more we grow in our unity together as a body of believers... See that unity in the church, greater power will be displayed in the marketplace. But it won't work. It won't work if we're all just kind of scattered doing our own thing. It won't work if we're all out there as sheep looking for the greener grass. It won't work if we're gazing over the fence, licking our lips and saying, hmm, they look like they're eating a little better than me. I think I'm going to mosey on over there. It won't work that way. That's not unity. You see, if we want to manifest the kingdom power of God and be a sign and a wonder, we must have unity within the body of Christ. And you see, I believe that we have to be careful. This is grape juice, and this is water. If you go to the store to buy grape juice... When you go home and you open it up, you expect to get what? Grape juice. But let's say you drink some of that grape juice, and it seems really watered down. You're going to have a problem with that grape juice, aren't you? 
Because when you bought it, you wanted the fullness of that. You wanted the pure what you paid for. But if we water down that grape juice, it's not really grape juice anymore. It's more like flavored water. It doesn't have the same effect as what we purchased. This is what will happen if we're not careful with the body of Christ. If we are not unified and we go out to the world and we're proclaiming Christ, we're only proclaiming diluted juice. We're only proclaiming a diluted gospel. We are only, we're only really promoting a diluted God. And what we want to offer is a pure God, a pure gospel, a full gospel, a pureness. We don't want to offer anything diluted, but it will become diluted if we are not unified. And we see this in the scriptures here. Look with me in this last passage of Ezra chapter 8, 21 through 23. It says there, by Abba Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children. With all our possessions, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. That's unity. That's unity. Ezra understood the power and the importance of unity within the body of Christ. He said, listen, guys, if we're going to have a company that God provides for us, we are going to need to be unified. We're going to have to pray about it. And then God is going to give us the direction that we need in order to be powerful. See, Ezra and his company understood that their travels between Mesopotamia and Palestine were extremely dangerous. And it's interesting that Ezra says, I was too afraid to petition the king because I believe that the favor of God was on us. Ezra had a different view than what others currently had. So they make their travels from Mesopotamia to Palestine. But this is what I found out of this, is that Jesus always has an army on reserve. I, as we were worshiping this morning and we were singing that last song, I just kept hearing Jesus say this over to me, a triumphant reserve, a triumphant reserve. And you know what I really sense is that this body of Christ, as we remain obedient to the Lord and as we fulfill the commandments of God that he has established within us, we don't have to look far for resource because there is a triumphant reserve set aside for us that God has. And this is key. Because, see, Ezra was one man, one man that God brought in with favor that moved these men and women out of a place. We are one, but we are many. We are one, but we are many. And if God gives us the dream, and if God gives us the anointing, he will obviously give us the resources as well. He'll give us that triumphant reserve. Jesus demonstrated this perfectly. Jesus was a man who didn't store up saying, guys, we got to get on a campaign here because we need resources. He didn't do that. Jesus prayed and got a hold of that triumphant reserve under the favor of his father. He needed a ride to be escorted into Jerusalem before the crucifixion. Because he needed to fulfill the scriptures of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, I got a resource. Go here and get a donkey. Because that's my escort into Jerusalem. A blind guy comes to Jesus and says, I can't see. Jesus just looks around and grabs the resources at hand. Some mud, some dirt, water. Packs it together, puts it on the guy's eyes guy sees. Jesus encounters another guy who can't speak. 
just pulls the guy's tongue out, uses his resources, a hand spits on the guy's tongue, and the guy talks. If we want to walk in God's favor, we have to recognize the resources that he has given us at hand and not waver from that. Would you stand with me? I just ask that you would take a posture to receive and you can define that however you want. If it's lifting up your hands or putting them out in front of you or just holding them close. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because I just want to pray for you. And as I pray for you, I just ask that you would trust me that as I pray for you, my prayer will bless you because I want to pray that you will experience God in a totally new way, that you will see him in the way that he wants to be for you in these next coming seasons that you will never, never imagine that you would see him as. So, Father, this morning, I thank you for each and every individual in this place. Father, we know sometimes we don't ever hear answers to the questions that we ask. But, Father, we come to realize that it's bigger than us and that we're to expect your favor in every situation. I pray, God, that, Father, you would give us a definition of what your favor is for every situation. I pray, God, that you would renew our view of how we currently see you. Father, show us who you want to be for us in these next coming seasons as we regain our loss. Father, I pray that we would not expand our efforts and wear ourselves down trying to regain what we have lost. But Lord, that we would be in this place of peace and expectancy, knowing that you will provide. Father, I pray that we would be able to enter our situation with joy, regardless of what is before us. Father, give us a fresh understanding of the anointing of God and that we can partner with you in it. And Father, give us a clarity of those that you have triumphantly reserved on the side for us for our situation to walk us through our problems or to help us gain restoration for the next season or to move into what you have for us. Father, we love you so much. And the reality is, is we don't have anything to offer you but our love and our abilities to lay those down before you. And so we do that today, God. And we declare that you are Lord of our lives and that we love you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.